Spirit of God, strong as the wind, show to us Jesus' love. Amen. We come this morning to what is the third of the signs, the third of the miracles that John has recorded for us in his gospel concerning Jesus. The first two, changing water into wine and, and the healing of the official son that we looked at last week, were done somewhat privately and, and that only a few knew. This miracle, this sign, however, is done in a very public place and is carried out on the Sabbath, which as we will see as the chapter unfolds, puts Jesus sorry, on something of a collision course with the religious leaders of the day, which, and we won't be looking at it this morning, but which, as verse 18 tells us, led the Jews to try all the harder to kill him. Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and he returns to Jerusalem to attend a feast of the Jews. We're not told which one. But what it does show us is that Jesus was true and Jesus was obedient to the feasts. Jesus lived his life in obedience, not just to the Father, but to the Jewish way of life. And as Jesus nears the city, he approaches it. Can I just point out that actually... Uh, such a pool that John describes here actually has been identified by archaeologists. Okay, so it shows us that we are dealing here with, with, with history. These, this isn't some kind of fable or fairy tale. This is real. This actually happened one Sabbath day in Jerusalem. So what happened? And what can we learn? Well, there's three things to notice. Firstly, let's consider the man's condition. Jesus enters, as I said, through the sheep gate and he is confronted by what can only be described as a rather disturbing sight because John tells us that gathered around the pool, use your kind of sanctified imagination, gathered around the pool, were blind. There were those who were lame. There were those who were paralyzed. And we might ask ourselves, well, well why this place? Why, why are they all lying about here? And depending on, on the version of the Bible you use, you, you either have a reason in the actual body of the text itself, or as in the NIV, down as a footnote. And the reason that they're all gathered there was there was a belief from time to time that an angel of the Lord would come down and would stir the waters and the first one, the first one in the waters, once they had been stirred, would be cured. Now, that the water did stir is not in question because verse 7 makes that clear. But John gives us no indication whatsoever that anyone was ever healed. 
But that did not stop people from lying there and for waiting and for longing. And, and, and maybe, maybe today, maybe the angel will come today, maybe the watch will start today, maybe I'll get in first today. What a sorry, sad sight that greeted Jesus that day. And John introduces us to one of that crowd that lay around the pool. He'd been an invalid for 38 years. Whether he was born an invalid and whether he but, but 38 years is a long time to have a particular problem. 38 years is a long time to have a particular condition. Can you imagine it? Living every day with this disability. Hoping that maybe, maybe just one day, you just might get into that pool. One day it might be your day to be free, to be well. Pinning all your hope on some kind of magical cure. Yet day after day passes, week after week, month after month, year after year, 38 of them, and still nothing. And all he can do is kind of sit and wait and suffer and hope and long that maybe you just, just maybe you might get into that pool first whenever this happens. His condition is awful. And it seems from verse 7 that he's got nobody to help him. I actually found this a real challenge this week in study. Here is somebody in dire need and he's got nobody. He's disabled. He's got no friends. He probably had to beg. And as I said, no doubt day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. So he sat there by the pool. People just walked on by. Nobody helped. Nobody seems even to take notice. You know, there are many people like that in our world today. And here's a challenge. Do we see them? Do we see them? And if so, do we help them? And I think that we have to be careful not to be too quick because we'll get to this point, we'll get to the point, but I think we have to be careful not to be too quick in just spiritualizing everything. We are introduced here primarily to this man's physical condition. And indeed, as we will see, it seems that this healing of this man did not, or at least may not have brought about spiritual healing. And yet we see Jesus reaching out to him. Re reached out, sorry, to the woman 
at the well. Do we see the condition of people? Both, both physically and spiritually. Do, do we see them as people or just projects? And when we have the opportunity, do we seek, as it were, to be Jesus to them? People lying about in hopeless states, helpless condition. Do we bring something of Jesus to them? Rather intrigued by the thought of the angel stirring the waters. Commentaries are actually quite quiet on it. Was, but but was, this, was this some kind of superstition that had over time almost grown to a fast-held belief? I, I don't fully know. But what I do find interesting is that in each of these three miracles, each of these three signs that John has taken time to record for us, water plays a significant part. And especially so when Jesus, as it was, intervenes and Jesus brings kind of new meanings that, 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 that begin to reveal more of his true identity. Think back to the wedding at Cana when, when we looked at that, whenever that was, before Christmas, I think it was. And we noted then that, that it was the ceremonial pots that, that were filled with water and then changed into wine of the new kingdom. The woman at the well spoke of natural water. Jesus spoke of living water. And here we see that it is not some kind of superstitious religion, some kind of magical stirring of water that has got the power to transform. But the very words of Jesus. When we look out into our hurting world and the condition of those round about us, what do we see? And what do we do? Man's condition. Secondly, and I've kind of already hinted at it, we notice Jesus' compassion. So did hundreds of others over the years. Yet Jesus does more than just see him. Jesus does something about it. And again, I, I found it interesting that notice what John tells us. John tells us that Jesus learned. Jesus learned that he... I don't think Jesus learned it by showing, or if I can use the word, using his kind of divine powers. And, you know, in, in, in the same way, remember... Um, way back chapter 1 or 2 and, and he kind of saw Nathaniel under the tree and, and, and like you know he was kind of revealed and then speaking to, to the woman at the well at Samaria he, he, he revealed something of, of her kind of background you know kind of the, the, the divine power I don't think that, that doesn't speak to me of how he learned to, to learn you've kind of got to talk Did Jesus ask the man? Did Jesus speak to him? Did he have a conversation with him? 
yeah, John's silent on it, but the fact that Jesus learned, he must have at least inquired about him. Then Jesus asks him what we might consider to be something of a strange question. He's a man that's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's got no friends. He's trying to get healed. He's trying to get into water if he had the chance. And Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? One would assume that the answer would be a definite yes. Yes. But that's not the case. Notice that the man gives, I guess, at least what I consider to be a less than enthusiastic response. One that probably ties in with the belief that he saw that his only hope of getting well was to get into the waters when they stirred and nobody there was to help him. Someone always got in before him. He thought, he, he believed that, that his cure lay only in getting into the water whenever they stirred. And then Jesus simply says to him, pick up your mat and walk. <laughs> we know these miracles so well, but can you imagine? 38 years he's been there. And just, do you want to get well? And he gives kind of excuses and just says, pick up your mat and walk. And he did it. He did it. He, he, he could have lay there thinking, how can I possibly stand up? I've been like this for 38 years. But no, he gets up. And, and, and notice, John, Jesus doesn't even reach out a hand. You know, someone's lying down for you. You would kind of, no. Jesus just says, stand. Jesus doesn't pull him up. And, and, and then when he gets up and, and his up on his legs. You know if you've been in your bed for three or four days with man flu, which is real, right? And, and, and you get up and, and you try to stand about it. This guy's been down for 38 years. Doesn't even wobble. Jesus doesn't have to kind of steady him. He gets up and he walks. <laughs> he walks. It's a miracle. And once again, it shows us something of the person and the power of who Jesus is. And yeah, you and I might have questions about this miracle and this sign. Why, why, why this man and not someone else? Don't know. Why did Jesus not heal everyone at the pool that day? Don't know. Why did Jesus, as verse 13, just slip away? Don't know. Why did the man not even bother to find out and thank Jesus for what he had done? I don't know. But the fact that Jesus saw him, the fact that Jesus learned something of him, the fact that Jesus spoke with him, the fact that Jesus healed him, and as we will see in our next point, the fact that Jesus challenged and Savior, Jesus Christ, towards those whom society would have long rejected. These signs always point to something far greater than just the miracle itself. And here we see that it is Jesus and it's Jesus alone who can meet any long-standing need or situation. You do not need to look to superstition or anything else. We look merely to Jesus. That question 
Do you want to get well? Is as relevant to us today as it was to the man at the pool. Because our response brings with it implications. As we saw last week with the royal official and with this man, taking Jesus at his word brings implications and involves choices. The royal official and his family came to believe, verse 53 of chapter 4. We'll see in a minute or two this man's response. But notice what happens next, and I'm going to just, I'm going to just kind of quickly go over this bit, and I'm going to look at it in more detail the next time because it's just important. But, but, but we're told that the day this happened was a Sabbath. And the man just miraculously healed is pulled up by the religious leaders of the day for carrying his mat. This is religion at its worst. This is religion with all its rules and all its regulations. The law, the law did not forbid the carrying of a mat. It did forbid work. And, and Bruce Milne, for me, kind of rather humorously says, as the man wasn't a furniture remover, he would not have been accused of working. The religious people, initially for some good reasons, but the religious people ha had built their own laws. By Jesus' time, and probably before, but certainly by Jesus' time, the religious leaders of the day had added another 39 restrictions to the Sabbath. All man-made. It made for misery. And they are more interested in pulling this... And they ask him, who is this fellow who told you to pick? How dare he? Who is this fellow who told you to do this? And amazingly, this healed man has no idea. Now, like, if someone has just cured you after 38 years of illness, would you not want to know who he was? Would you not want to find out? He doesn't even know the name. He doesn't even know who Jesus' name is. Yet he had experienced such compassion, such blessing, and such healing. Yet he didn't even know. Doesn't that, friends, speak so much into society today? We take the gifts, but we ignore the giver. Maybe Jesus has healed you. Maybe Jesus has rescued you. Maybe God has shown to you great compassion. What is your response? So many barely even know him or pay lip service. Man's condition. Jesus' compassion. Finally, we read about Jesus' challenge. 
Verse 14. Verse 14 tells us that later Jesus found him at the temple. That could be a kind of positive sign for the guy because he might have been there because he wanted to give thanks to God for his healing or, or to confirm it with the priests. Luke chapter 17, verse 14 would make that point. Not about this man, but in, in general about being healing and going to the temple and, and proving it to the priests. And when Jesus sees this man in the temple, Jesus says to him two things. Jesus says, see, you, you're well again. Showing that this was a complete healing. And then he tells a man to stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What did Jesus mean by these two sayings? Well, let's get kind of rid of the easy one, okay? I, I, I think we can easily see what was meant by the first. And that the man is well again. He, he's been healed. It's beyond doubt. It's obvious. There's no, no debate about that. So Jesus is just reminding him. I healed you. I healed you. But what of Jesus says next? He clearly confronts, just confronts the man. Just as he did with the woman at the well. And he confronts him regarding sin. He, he tells him bluntly, stop sinning stop which means he was still sinning someone tells you to stop doing something it's because you're doing it stop sinning with the clear assertion that if you don't stop this something worse may happen so let's unpack because that's what exegesis is what is this something worse What's this something worse? Could, could it refer, could Jesus be referring to a relapse back into his illness? Now, then, as to dig between sin and sickness, but it must be stressed, must be stressed, despite what some might say, that not all sickness is as a result of sin. We'll actually begin to look at that whole subject when, when this evening we start studies in, in the book of Job. Job's suffering and Job's sickness was not as a result of sin. Indeed, the exact opposite could be argued, but that's kind of for Sunday evenings. I believe that Jesus is pointing here towards more than just a physical relapse. I believe that Jesus is here speaking regarding the eternal consequences of sin, which are far more serious than any physical ailment, notwithstanding the pain, distress that physical ailments bring, and which this man must have known for 38 years. And yes, his sinning may, may bring him further discomfort in this life and be the cause of further suffering. However, the pain and suffering it may bring is nothing 
compared to the eternal consequences of continuing in his sin. For like us all, this man may eventually die. I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead, yet he died again. We will all die. It's appointed unto man once to die. And then we come face to face with the judgment of God for the sin that we have done. And to die in our sins, to die while still sinning, to die without trusting in Christ who alone can forgive is the worst possible position for any person. And again, as John continually challenges us and as, as he has the purpose of his book is, 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 is that by, these, by reading these things we might come to believe. We need to ask ourselves, where do we stand on these things? Don't, don't ask, where does so-and-so stand on this? Where do we stand on these things? And, and let me just say that, that Jesus is no less compassionate here when challenging the man regarding his sin than he was when he healed the man. He's not any less compassionate, friends. You see, to pretend that sin, my sin, your sin, doesn't matter, and to pretend that all will be well that ends well, is firstly not being true to Scripture, and secondly, doing nobody any favours. You might disagree with me, but I need to tell you. If you have an illness, you want to know the truth. If there is danger ahead, you want to be warned. Kind of storm, Syria or whatever you call it, is on its way. Right? Everybody is supposed to be getting prepared for it. Jesus is coming. You ready for it? You ready for him? You ready? Compelled to give that warning, to give that challenge, that to die without Christ, to die in your sins brings nothing but hell and eternal punishment. And these are not light matters, friends. And I pray that God, by the Holy Spirit, would draw you to himself, even this morning. We actually don't really know what happened to this man. Other than he went out and he told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. Did, did, did he stop sinning? Don't know. Did he like the official from last week come to believe? I don't know. Pray, did. The challenge is this. Not what did this man do, but what will you do? How will you leave church 
this morning. You can only leave this church one of two ways. You either leave still in your sins and facing the consequences that that brings and the wrath of God. Or you leave this morning knowing the joy and the peace and the forgiveness that having your sins forgiven, removed, cleansed, wiped away, remembered, no more. You can know that. You can know that peace and that joy and that forgiveness even now because it is grace and grace alone that takes our sin that has paid our price. Let's pray.